Excuse me. old tale, the, the prince and the pauper. We, we get this, this story uh, of one who is born a prince and raised a prince and, and knows life as a prince. Knows what it is to, to command respect, to, to order servants, to have things done because of his position as the son of the king. At the same time, in, in a similar place, there is one born in the streets, one who is a pauper, one who, who has nothing to his name, who goes around and begs for food, one who, who knows the life of a pauper, knows what it is to, to not have anything, knows what it is to be hungry, and knows what it is to be trampled on by, by those around him. Just so happens that this prince and this pauper share an uncanny resemblance. And so in, this, in, in the story, as it continues, they, they through, through some chance, meet each other and decide, we're going to switch places. The prince wants to see what it is to just go in the streets and not have everybody know who he is and, and to just live life as as just one of the people in the streets. And, and so they, they switch Places and, and then there's, there's the whole commotion of, of what happens when one who, who knows what it is to command respect and to order people around and, and to just have food all the time is suddenly now one who, who doesn't have and who everybody looks down upon and who as he tries to command people just gets laughed at and kicked to the side. And then one who knows nothing of this life and, and who only knows fearing and cowering is all of a sudden waited on and, and asked to have responsibilities of a kingdom. And the, the, the madness that happens there. And as we think about that story and then think about those switching of places and, and mistaken identity and everything, each one of those knew where they had come from. I wonder how the story would be different if there had been some sort of accident that caused a loss of memory. That the prince, though born a prince and raised a prince and, and having all the authority of a prince, did not remember that he was a prince. How would the story change then? If he had no memory of that. If, if all he knew was just whatever he saw and he didn't know where he belonged rather than than being in the streets and yet still standing tall and and commanding people to do things and expecting things he assumes the the stature of of those around him and and probably scurries into the shadows as as authority comes by and and hides how would that story have been different if the prince didn't remember that he was a prince as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to pick it up today in verse 18. And, and this, this kind of marks a, a transitioning period. It's kind of the beginning of a transition. In a lot of, of, of Paul's letters as he's writing to the churches, 
He spends a whole lot of time at the beginning just focusing on, on theology and on understanding things rightly and, and, and really taking a lot of time to, to say this is what is true and this is what is right. Before, in the, in the latter parts of his letters, he starts walking into more of, and this is how we walk it out in our daily lives. He tends to write in that way. This is what is true, and now this is how we live it out. As we're picking up today at the end of chapter 3 and starting into the beginning of chapter 4, we're starting to see Paul make that shift. As he's going to recap a lot of the things that we've been looking at over the last weeks, he's going to be hearkening back to a lot of those things that we've been talking about. But it's almost as though he's reminding the, the church in Corinth, and, and as, as he's reminding us today as we hear it again, This is the truth of who you are. And you've forgotten it. And if you've forgotten who you are, then you start living just like everybody else in the world. And so here Paul is is just, again, crying out this wake-up call. Remember who you are in Christ so that you can live accordingly. We're looking today in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll read verses 18 to the fifth verse of chapter 4 as we kind of work on this bridge. We've just come out of that section where Paul reminds them, do you not know that you, you all, the church, you all are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you, that you show the world what God is like. And so starting in verse 18, Paul begins by saying, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us. As servants of Christ. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. In this section here, Paul uses five different imperatives. Okay, what's an imperative? As we're looking at at different ways that that sentences work, if you're just talking about something, giving information, you're just kind of declaring something. But if if you're giving an imperative, this this is like a command. This is saying, you need to do this, or you need to not do this. It's a command 
not just giving information. Paul uses five of them as he's setting up his case here, reminding the Corinthians of, of who they are and what's required. The first one is that very first line in, in verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. That's the first command that Paul puts out there. Let no one deceive himself. And self-deception seems to be one of, one of the most common and most tricky sins that we see. Self-deception, where, where we convince ourselves of different things that are not true. And we see it all throughout Scripture. We see the prophets talking about the way Israel has, has deceived themselves into thinking that God, the judge, will not actually judge. That even as, as he is being generous and merciful and, and delaying a particular judgment, that it's not actually going to happen. And we deceive ourselves into thinking it doesn't really matter. We see that same kind of self-deception as far back as, as Adam and Eve, right? When the serpent starts talking to Eve, surely the serpent is doing some deceiving. But it's as it starts working in Eve's mind and she looks at that and she says, yeah, you know, the fruit does look good. And it is desirable to make us wise. And maybe, just maybe, God is holding out on us. Maybe there's something bigger, there's something better, and God doesn't want us to have that. And maybe God's holding out on us, and that self-deception starts working based on those promptings. And it says that she reaches, and she took, and she ate, and she gave some to Adam, who was with her, and he ate. And that whole idea of, Maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe this isn't really that bad. Maybe, maybe I can have this because God is just trying. God doesn't want my best. He just wants to hold me back. And that self-deception starts creeping in and festering and then living out. There are so many ways of self-deception in the Corinthian church as we watch Paul speak to them. We've, we've seen them working on that self-deception of look at the way things work in Corinth. Look at, at how prosperous the businessmen are and look at, at the way that, you know, if you, if you lie to somebody, you gain in business. If, if you gain in business, you gain in, gain in status. And if you gain in status, you gain importance and you're really something. And so all we have to do is lie to our neighbor, cheat our neighbor, boast on ourselves and then we're better people for it and the self-deception creeps in and infests and and then affects the whole way of life paul starts this whole concept after coming out of saying you show the world what god is like he says let no one deceive themselves don't fall for those lies those lies that just sit in there and, and creep and fester and, and just keep going. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, Paul says, let him become a fool that he may become wise. 
Paul spent a lot of time already in the first few chapters of the letter talking about wisdom and what wisdom is and the way the world sees wisdom and the way God sees wisdom. The way the world looks at wisdom and says, here's how you have to do things. And, and the world would look at, at sacrifice. The world looks at service and says, and says that's, that's for the base. That's for, for things that don't matter. And God says service is what matters. And as we sacrifice, as we lay down ourselves for another, we're actually gaining so Paul comes again and, and, and hearkens back to that idea of wisdom. If anyone thinks he is wise in this age, Paul puts that statement out there as though he already knows it's true. There are many among you, he's saying, who think they are wise in this age. Who think they've got things made and they're getting things done and just tacking a little bit of God on the side. He says, if anyone is there, you need to turn around. He, he uses those opposites again as he brings in that second imperative. If anyone thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool. He's been, he's been talking about wisdom and foolishness. And he says if anyone thinks they've got it going on, they need to stop and turn from all that. Let him become a fool, he says. Because the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God are polar opposites. So if you've been building up the, the worldly reputation, if you've been building up all this, he says you need to stop. You need to back away. You need to become a fool. So that you may become wise. Paul saying the true wisdom is not the way the world defines it. The true wisdom comes the way God defines it. And so Paul is looking at a people who have forgotten who they are, who have, who have allowed the lies to creep in and fester and allowing the lies to define the way they're acting. And then as those lies are working themselves out, they become worldly wise in their own eyes. They start doing things just the way all their pagan neighbors are doing them. They start living and acting just the way all their pagan neighbors are living and acting. And, and they're, they're thinking that because they gather together, they're just kind of blessing whatever life they want to live. And Paul's saying we have to turn from the lies. That's the first thing. The second, if you think you're, you're wise in this age, if you think you're doing it right in this age, that means you're actually doing it wrong. Turn from that so that you may actually become wise. In verse 19, he's again summarizing what we've seen him talking about clear back in chapter 1. The wisdom of this world is folly with God. The way the world sets it up, the way the world promises things are going to go, are all temporary. None of it lasts. And so as God looks on a much bigger timeline than the world, all of that breaks down and is folly. It's worthless. He turns to Scripture then to, to make his case. As he says, for it is written. That's one of those things that when we see Paul saying, for it is written, that means he's looking back at Scripture. He's looking at the, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. Where he says, he catches the wise in their craftiness. 
Crafty was the way the serpent was described clear back in Genesis 3, if you remember. Now the serpent was the craftiest of all animals. And he says the Lord catches up the wise in their craftiness. And again he says in verse 20, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Futile. What a desperate word, right? Empty. Worthless. The the best of their thoughts on their own are worthless. So, Paul says in 21, let no one boast in men. This is his third imperative. Let no one deceive himself. Let him become a fool by world standards. And let no one boast in men. Paul is saying, make sure that that you're putting your stock where it belongs. Don't boast in men because men are, are falling apart. Men are failing. And we probably don't need to say it, but we'll say it anyway. This is talking about all mankind. Men, women, children, together, we are all broken and failing as we do things on our own. And when we put all our hope and all our trust in in just a person, it's failing. And we saw that even as Paul started talking about divisions in the church, that this is the way it was happening. They were coming behind different leaders. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. And he brings all those names out again. He says, for all things are yours. Don't boast in the men because all these people, he says, they're yours. This is an interesting thing. Watch this. He's just told them not to boast. And now he's about to give them something in which they very well likely could boast in their flesh. They've been boasting in the leaders. I follow this one. I follow that one. No, that one's junk. This one's got things going on. I'm following him. That's where they're doing it. And he says, all these things are yours. Whether Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, that's Peter, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. Man. Somebody could just pull that little thing out right there and make a sermon that sounds like we can boast a lot. huh? The highest of the leaders in the church are mine. The very world, life and death, present and future, mine yeah clearly that's not what Paul's saying is it because he just told them do not boast so even as these leaders he says are yours we get this idea that that the leaders Paul Apollos Cephas as they've been working and doing what God has been doing it is for the purpose that people can hear the gospel And find life and know what life is in Jesus. That God has them there to work so that the people can know. That they are where they are in the world so that they can hear and know that they breathe and and have life so that they can hear and know that what we go through now, what is coming in the future, is so that we may know 
So Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, the world, life, death, present, and future are yours, he says, so that you can know. It's not so that we can boast and, and look what I've got at my disposal, because from there, he says, but you are not your own, right? All of these, he says, are yours in 22. And then in 23, he says, and you are Christ's. All these leaders who are preaching the gospel, the the very breath you draw, we could say that is yours, but you are Christ. You belong to someone else. And Paul is begging the Corinthian church, do not forget who you are. God loves you so much. He has put these leaders in your life. He has, he has given you life. You are in this place. You are drawing breath. You can hear that Jesus loves you and he died for you. That God is calling you to himself. And that you are not your own. You belong to him. And he rounds it out. Christ is God's. That Jesus is God's answer. That God, the eternal Son, Jesus, took on flesh. He is the Messiah. He is the one who came to destroy death, to destroy sin, to make it possible for us to have life. But when we forget that we are His, then we start thinking too much of ourselves. If we stop being amazed at who Jesus is and what He has done, then we start being amazed at who we are and what we do. And that self-deception creeps in. And, and we become wise by the world standards as we build ourselves up. And we boast in ourselves. Paul's saying, don't forget who you are. And so having just talked about those leaders, he says, so this is how you should regard us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mystery of God. We're just servants. We're just doing what God's called us to do. And as stewards, we are ones who are here to care for something, to care for, to steward the mysteries of God. And what does Paul say that mystery of God is? That gospel message that Jesus loves you enough that He would die to pay the price for your sin. A price that in our self-deception, we don't even believe is there. We don't even think that, that sin actually matters. And yet Paul's saying that has to crumble so we understand the mystery, so we know how big a debt it is that we owe that we could never pay, and He has done it for us. And so as we steward it, we are ones who are just taking orders. But we are also ones who are caring for that order. A steward, he says in that very next verse, must be found faithful. God is faithful. And we reflect Him. I think I want to stop there today, actually. We'll pick up with the rest of that next week. As we remember from the end of, of chapter 3 there, that Paul is looking at, at 
that church in Corinth. He is, he is hearing what's happening in Corinth. He is seeing what's playing out in their lives. And he's saying, you've forgotten who you are. And you've forgotten what God's called you to. Don't be self-deceived. Don't build up in, in worldly wisdom. Don't boast in men. Because there's something much, much greater. So as we might be in danger of forgetting, of allowing ourselves to be deceived to the point that we think sin doesn't actually matter. Or if we deceive ourselves to say, you know what, I I can do my own thing, and as long as I get to church, or, you know, at least own a Bible, God's going to kind of bless whatever it is I want to do. Or we get this idea of, yeah, you know, I, God's probably pretty important. And, and later, when things calm down, maybe I'll think about that. There are all kinds of ways we deceive ourselves. What's God calling of you today? Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you, Lord, that even as we are prone to wander, as we sang earlier, even as we are prone to to just foster lies within ourselves and convince ourselves of things which are untrue, God, I pray that you will break those down for your glory. That you will remind us who we are in you. Jesus, as we have life in you, help us to live as ones who are seeking you for wisdom, who are boasting only in you, not in who we are. Lord, I pray that that affects every aspect of our lives and our relationships with others and the words we speak and the way we spend our money, the way we do anything. God, may may that overwhelm us that we have life in you. God, if there are any here today who, who still are unsure about that, who don't know what that means, would you be at work in their heart showing them the truth? Remind us who we are, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ushers, will you come forward, please, to serve communion? When we talk about this, this mystery of God, this, this truth of the gospel, taking communion, we remind ourselves of that truth.